Accelerating Careers in Real Estate with Nick Carman. Brought to you by McDonald & Company. The Accelerating Careers in Real Estate podcast is now supported by the Urban Land Institute. To find out more about becoming a member, please follow the link in the show notes, remembering to quote the promo code ACRE to take advantage of all the benefits of our partnership. More details at the end of this podcast. This evening, I'm sat with Kate Ives, Strategic Director at Countryside Partnerships South. Now, I talk a lot about chapters in our career, acceleration, consolidation and spark. And for Kate, who's just days into a new role, I expect it's just the beginning of a new, very exciting acceleration chapter. So Kate, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you for having me, Nick. I'm really pleased to be here. Before we get into that latest chapter, let's see how it all began. Yeah, absolutely. Um, For me, it began with geography and I'm a passionate geographer. It was my favourite subject at school and um, I had a teacher called Mr. Dacey. He always gave me 99%, which was an irritant to me because I was always striving for 100% on all of my exams. But I suspect he, he knew that and he was trying to push me to go even further. But my passion in geography lasted all the way through to the end of high school. And when it came time to sort of choose what degree I would do, I searched and searched and searched um, the university guides to try and kind of work out where I might fit in. And I chose town planning and I packed the car and headed off to, to Brisbane and started a town planning degree at Queensland University of Technology. And I absolutely loved it. I was twinned with the landscape architecture students. So funnily enough, I had to learn to draw, which I was not very good at then and I'm still not very good at. But one of the things that that gave me was a really interesting opportunity to think about scale of places. And so, you know, one minute I'd be drawing like, you know, the fine details of a leaf. And then the next minute I'd be thinking, you know, huge strategic planning of regions. And um, it made me really appreciate more about the built environment and why I was there. And I think it intensified my love for geography and town planning because it made me notice places more than I did before. But while I was at university, I also didn't really quite get what a town planner was. It's not the sort of thing where, you, you know, you, you meet town planners in your you know, everyday life. Um, I, I know a lot of them now and I think they're fabulous people, but as a young person, I, I didn't really come across any. And so I thought, gee, I better work out what this is. And so I wrote, a, I don't know, 20 letters to every town planning firm that there was in Brisbane. And luckily enough, I got a phone call and it was from a chap called Michael Walter really nice guy. And he said, come in on Monday. And I thought, oh, okay, this is interesting. I'll I'll pop in on Monday. And not only did he say you can have a part-time job, but it was actually a paid job, which was brilliant for me because I was living away from home. Uh, I didn't have a lot of money. um, So that really helped pay the rent. But the fact that someone was willing to pay me to learn was amazing. And from that work experience. I got a full-time job working for Walter Consulting in Brisbane and I absolutely loved it. But moving on from there, I was working as a town planner and as a consultant and most of the clients were large property developers. So, you know, akin to a Barrett or a Bellway over here in the UK. 
they were great clients, lots of work, really interesting projects, different types of scales and complexities. But what I noticed is the planning permissions would come through, which I would have worked months away at. And I'd go up to the town hall and I'd get the piece of paper and I'd bring it back and I'd fax it off to the client and they'd go out and celebrate. And they'd go out and have um, steak and champagne and beer and whatnot all night because they got this planning permission. And I'd be sitting at my desk with a cup of tea. And I thought, well, I, I love a cup of tea, but I'm pretty sure I want to be on the other side of that equation. So it was that, at that point I thought I better kind of work out how I get, how I get one of those jobs. And I guess, Nick, in a way, that was part driven by seeing the kind of client side and what that could be, but part driven by money as well. You know, client side, you know, back then was better paid and I was hungry to, you know, drive my kind of prosperity forward at that point in time. So I did a postgraduate degree in property and then I jumped ship and started working for a um, house builder. In Australia and you know didn't look back from there and that's my that was my route through to I guess development management and, and property development and how I transitioned from geography to town planning and then into the world of, of, of a property developer. So forever to be known as the, uh, the champagne and steak chapter then I think we've got coming up haven't we? Absolutely and I really do like champagne as well so <laughs> I think I think it was maybe my calling Nick. <laughs> Um, well, then, you know, to our to our sort of astute listener, you know, they're getting a, a hint of a, an Aussie accent, and sort of, um, and hearing about sort of how the the first sort of chapters beginning here. Um, but we're firmly back in, uh, in in Blighty now. So tell us how did how did that transition occur? Yeah, so um, I was working in Australia, working really hard. I always did everything double time, you know. So even when I was studying for town plan, my, my town planning, I was working. When I was working, I was studying for my property postgraduate um, and I, I just did everything double time. And I actually felt like I needed a bit of a switch up. So I had lots of friends in London at the time and I thought I like, really like nightclubbing as well. And um, I, I sort of think, you know, if you, if you like a bit of nightclubbing, you're in your 20s, London's not a bad place to land. So I came over here with the intention of just being here for a few months and just to enjoy it, always to go back, career focused, you know, and I loved it. I was just blown away, not just by the nightclubbing, of course, which was cool, but I was blown away by the city. And I think maybe as a town planner and someone who has always loved places and spaces, to come to a place like London with that rich history and all the dynamics that you get from you know, one part of London to the other, and just the scale of the opportunity in terms of property development and the complexity of it as well, compared to what I was working in at the time in Australia was just, uh, you know, mind-blowing. And so after a while, I thought, oh, gosh, I better get a proper job. Um, I can't be mucking around and, and just sort of doing kind of odd, odd project management contracting jobs here, here and there. And so I started to sort of, you know, search for, for what might be the right thing. And I ended up with an interview at a company called First Base, which was um, run by Elliot Lipton. And it, I was just wowed from the start. You know, their office was in Soho, which was like super cool. They were all really bright and energetic people. They were really entrepreneurial and they had great projects on their books. And so I joined First Base in, in 2007. 
as an assistant development manager. And um, one of the great things about working for First Base is that it was a small business. There was only about 40 employees or something like that back then. And um, it meant that I got to work with the directors, often one-to-one or in, in groups. And I think that my learning journey there was just enormous because I got to just absorb everything that they were thinking and doing and, you know, for anything from sort of practical things about, you know, how to write a, a paper with, you know, finesse to strategic thinking. I got to meet a lot of people, be it, you know, fancy architects and major executives at, at um, you know, in the public sector. But while I was at First Base, I ended up getting married, pregnant uh, with my first and the recession hit. And I was on mat leave when the recession hit. um, And my line manager at the time called me up just as a bit of a check-in and said, oh, we've managed to get funding for this project in Islington. Are you interested in, in coming back or not? You choose. And I said, actually, that sounds really exciting to me because I'd already worked on that project and it was funded. And, you know, if you're in property development, the opportunity to see a project go from start to finish is incredible. It's really good for your career development to understand all of the phases of property development. And it's something that I often see lacking in, in people's experience because each project takes so long to deliver. You know, the average ordinary 200 home scheme is seven years from the moment you take the land to the moment that your last customer moves in. So when you think about it like that, it was a great opportunity for me to kind of see a project through to delivery. So I, I came back to work and um, it was a it was a great experience. I got to kind of, you know, see this, this amazing project come out of the ground and it's award-winning and I'm really proud to have worked on that project. So Kate, just um, just thinking then about those earlier sort of phases then with with first base, what do you think you you learned the most then in those those first few years? One really big one for me, Nick, and I talk about it all the time with young people that I work with, is the power of networking. And in development management and property development in particular. There's no single person who knows everything about property development and issues come up on the way and you need to call on people to come in to support you to move those projects forward. And when I was at first base, I absolutely learnt the power of networking and having people with skills and knowledge to surround me. So you've got that kind of phone a friend, if you like. And that can be anything from, you know, housing professionals or flood professionals or architects or, you know, other town planners, advisors, etc. But the, the power of networking is something that um, I think we can easily shy away from. I think it should be something that we all challenge ourselves on as individuals, because I think for me, it's part of owning your own career journey and taking control of your career. Because if you can be a problem solver and if you can shape those developments and demonstrate that you're able to unlock issues and and drive those projects forward, then you ultimately are going to create your own value as an individual. Really good advice, really good advice. Well, let's get back then to to Islington. Um, You sort of, you you mentioned about sort of, you know, what a great opportunity it was then to to begin uh, a scheme then from right, right from the beginning and then carry it through. Tell us a bit more about sort of how that how that developed and, and what that meant for you in, in particular. 
Yeah, so um, it was a really interesting scheme. It was 119 homes and it was a mixed mixed tenure scheme. So it was great for me to kind of start to build my knowledge of uh, affordable housing, which, you know, in Australia at the time, it just it just wasn't um, a big thing. It was all private, private development. Um, and it, it's sort of taking the scheme all the way through the, the journey in terms of letting a construction contract to a main contractor and then seeing handover of the homes. I think the biggest moment for me that came out of that scheme, which was a bit of an aha moment, was when I met one of the um, social housing tenants and her name was is Angela. And she was the victim of domestic abuse. She had two children and she also had a disability and she was in a really tough place. And we worked with Southern Housing Group, who are the housing association involved in that scheme. And she ended up securing a home that was not only just fit for her housing needs, but it was fit for her um, physical needs as well. And because I was so close to the scheme and so passionate about it, I actually attended the handover with, with Angela and gave her the keys. And she hugged me and she had tears in her eyes because we made her a home and we gave her the opportunity to, to feel safe, an opportunity to raise her children in a, in a safe, warm and happy environment. And that made me realise that at the end of all of this process stuff that we do, there is a person behind every one of those front doors that we build and those people are buying for all different reasons or renting for all different reasons. But ultimately, the reason is it's a home and that's really important that I think we remember that we're part of that sort of key moment in someone's life that, you know, builds their success, um, you know, in terms of their family life or their health or their well-being or their education or their work or whatever it is. Home is, the idea of home, I think, is quite central to that. So I feel really lucky to have had that moment so early in my career because it has been a driving force for me, the idea that I'm part of creating almost, I guess, the infrastructure that we need as a community to be happy, safe, successful. So get looking back then, you've been sort of full of praise then for first base, the projects and, and, and the size and sort of the approachability of, uh, of the leaders um, uh, there within that business. And no doubt that's, that's helped you then in terms of to accelerate and develop really, really quickly. But I suspect, you know, that period probably wanes. And I'm, and I'm curious now to ask, you know, sort of when you felt that, that sort of acceleration, the gradient of that maybe starting to slow. Yeah, that, that's a really good question, Nick, because with all of these experiences, there's sort of pros and cons, isn't there? And um, I think one of the challenges uh, working for First Base was also that it was small. And because it was a small business, it didn't have the strength of funding capacity that some other larger house builders had. So it, it was quite hard work to make sure projects were seamlessly able to be delivered from kind of, you know, securing the sites to then reaching planning and then moving on to, to start construction and then, and then hand over because it essentially was a, an operating platform for what was principally private equity. And Ultimately, although I had sort of the boss and the management in-house at first base, you also had this third party sitting outside that, you know, you, you could get close to 
but you were never close enough because some of them were you know international investors so the kind of certainty if you like around the funding needs that were coming into the business or a project meant it was quite hard to plan what your next thing was if that makes sense from a career perspective it felt very it, you know it moved from one to the one moment to the next never quite knowing well am i on that project or am i on that project because of the the pace and the ability to move those forward was effectively dictated by your investment partner that sat outside of the direct business okay so what happens next then what you know what's the what's the spark then to get to get your your career then once once more accelerating yeah so i mean i mentioned before you know first base saw me through a marriage and then three children and um, i started out as an assistant development manager and then moved into development director and worked on some really interesting complex projects etc but i was sitting there i wasn't wasn't quite 40 and i thought actually i i need another challenge i just felt like i didn't want to keep doing the same thing for the next sort of 10 to 15 years i really wanted to you know, I maybe get 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 uncomfortable, Nick. You know, maybe feel that actually um, that pressure of having to perform and do something different and learn and engage was was really what I was looking for. And at that point in time, I wasn't really looking as such. But I I met one of your colleagues, Ed, and he said, "Oh, you should you should talk to this chap called Paul." And I thought, "Oh, who's that?" And he said, "It's Paul Nichols." So I said, oh, I know, I know Paul. We've met several times before. I'll, I'll go and have coffee with him. And um, we didn't have a coffee. We actually had a gin and tonic and we had a good laugh and we had a good chat. And Paul was actually setting up what I would call a startup within the umbrella of the Waits group. And Waits, everybody knows as a main contractor, but it kicked off a, a business unit called Waits Residential, which was a business unit intending to invest in property development alongside being a main contractor to the public sector. So housing associations and local authorities. And um, although it was kind of a startup and there was, you know, low numbers of staff, they were, you know, well-funded, well-organized, they had opportunity for scale. And I thought, actually, I'm, I'm going to give that a go. And I guess the other side of me thought, I'd love to know how much it costs to build residential buildings. Because when I was working at First Base, it was really difficult when you're a developer and you're using main contractors on an arm's length basis to understand any point in time what your kind of cost position is on, on projects. You can get close, but you never could quite nail it. So I thought, I'll go, I'll go give this a go because surely weights know how much um, things cost to build. And uh, that that will help kind of forecasting and things like that. So jumped across and joined joined Waits and took a role of development director there. Out of interest, what do you think the executive that hired you at Waits, what do you think they, uh, why do you think they chose you? I think they saw the caliber of projects coming out of first base and the, the quality of the proposition. And I think they also saw that I understood complex contractual arrangements between funding and property partners and complex funding arrangements as well. So things like joint ventures and development agreements. So it wasn't that you just buy the land and you kind of take it forward yourself in a traditional house builder sense. Everything was 
bespoke contracts working with partners um, at first base. And that is exactly where Waits Residential wanted to go as well. So I could bring quite a lot of skills and experience in that regard to, to the business. It's a bit of a sucker punch because I did, I did ask him. <laughs> and uh, this, this is what he said. So he said, I first met Kate three years before I hired her. And I was truly blown away by how driven she was, how capable and how, how hungry she was. But in particular, how she dealt with a prospective partner that was, that was us at the time. So when I got the call to, you know, when I was discussing who I think might have, might have been right then for this, this new team, I'll be building at Waits. As soon as Kate's name was mentioned, it was a no brainer. <laughs> so oh, that's very nice. It is, it's very, very nice, isn't it? It's very nice to hear. Do you recognize those traits in you of interest? I, I do. I think saying I'm hungry is is true. Um, I've always been that type of person. You know, when I was talking about my, my earlier years at university whilst also working and, you know, I've always done everything 100 miles an hour. I, I have a just say yes attitude. And I think I really like what I do. And I'm really lucky that I've had that journey from geography to town planning to property development because it's been really natural. And I think I haven't landed somewhere because it's a job or someone recommended me for something. It, it, you know, it was because I, I made very conscious decisions about what I wanted to do and where I ended up. So I think when you couple that sort of hunger and that drive that's just part of who I am innately alongside really liking what I do, you get that coming out in a person. So I want to ask uh, another question then about the transition which would you describe as being the steepest learning curve when you joined first base without UK experience or when you, you left the style of, of business that first base was and then joined weights? I'd actually say joining first base, actually, you know, it was a, it was a small business and, they were really entrepreneurial. And when, you, when you're in a business like that, you can kind of end up chasing lots of different ideas down different roads that go nowhere. Whereas Waits Residential had a very defined purpose. And albeit it had, you know, it, it was a bit wild sometimes because it was a startup. It had an amazing umbrella of the Waits group sitting there that gave a lot of structure to some of the kind of corporate processes and procedures that were there. So, um, I, yeah, I'd say the transition from Australia to, to first base was more challenging. But, you know, I, Nick, I was younger as well. So, I, you know, I, I, at that point in time, I had less business experience, shall I say, um, compared to when I transitioned across to weights. So, yeah, I, I'd definitely say first base. Okay. Well, let's get into the detail then of weights. What was, what was happening these first few months and years? Oh, well, it was, it was quite fun. So, I joined thinking, okay, it'd be interesting to see what projects we've got and who we're working with and, you know, get under the skin of a little bit of that. And actually, there weren't many projects and we weren't working with many people. And I thought, well, that's going to be super boring to be a development director of nothing. So we better go out and get some projects. So Paul and I became a bit of a team and we rolled our sleeves up and thought, you know what, what what's the sort of work we should be going for here? Where can we add value to partners? Where do we think we can you know, make successful returns because we didn't want to take too much risk being a startup. We wanted to make sure that we created a stable platform for growth. And so we made some very conscientious decisions around the type of work that we would target. And 
I guess there's a couple that probably landed us on the map at the time. And one was the joint venture with Havering Borough Council, which was a partnership, 50-50 partnership to deliver housing regeneration on 12 of the council sites. So we were talking three and a half thousand homes, but potentially up to 5,000, depending on you know density and all of those sorts of things. And um, it was a real moment that created a bit of stabilisation in Waits Residential because we had pipeline that gave us consistency across one partnership. And, you know, these are big wins. It, you know, they it, they take a long time to develop and evolve through the kind of tendering process. But once they land, you're sort of, you're, you're at the races, if you know what I mean. Well, uh, you know, I'd like to do a bit of digging uh, as well. So I asked about, uh, and I spoke to another one of your colleagues at Waits, and I, I asked them a direct question and I, and I said what they thought were your most prominent traits. Um, and the first one they said was that Kate's an excellent networker um, and that whether she's talking to an MP, a consultant or the community, she's got these fantastic communication uh, skills to adapt to her audience. Does that sound, does that sound fair? I think it does sound fair if I'm if I'm being honest with myself. Part of that I think is driven by the fact that I've I'm, maybe I've used my you know the fact that I'm Australian a little bit to my advantage um, and I'm a woman. So if I'm honest, Nick, if I go somewhere, I'm easy to remember. So if I introduce myself to people, I I can easily start like natural non-technical conversations because most people have had some experience with Australia, be it whether they have gone there themselves for a gap year or they've got family living out there or they wish they could go there on a holiday or whatever the case may be. So some of my, I, I think my personal characteristics mean I can have very casual conversations very, very quickly with a lot of people. But I think my style is also really quite relaxed and I just want to get to know people. I'm a real people person. I genuinely am interested in other people, not just from a work perspective and what I can get out of them, but I I just love hearing about their stories, what they're all about, uh, what's important to them, and just just having genuine conversation with people. And I think that makes networking a lot easier when you're talking to people, not because you've got something you want from them, but because you genuinely want to hear about them and, you know, what, what they're up to. And how important is that, do you think, as a, as a skill for development as a whole? It's, I think it's a really important skill. I, I think it's something we don't teach enough of in the world of work, um, particularly young people. We don't give them enough opportunity as well to challenge themselves. It's very easy to say, I'm too busy to attend a networking event. And it's often the case where we only send senior people to networking events. But I'm a big believer that we send young people there and we give them a chance to grow their skills and to start to kind of feel more comfortable in that space um, so that they can build their own networks and build their own career, give them that opportunity to build their, their own career. And bring it back then to, to weights and, and Havering in, in particular, you know, I think you gave us a clue as, as to sort of how big a win that was then for, for that development company as a startup within the weights sort of family. What particular, let's say, sort of what sort of skills do you need to deploy or what lessons do you think you learned then from, um, from being successful in that, in that, in that time? 
oh, this is this is something that I remember talking a lot about, and it was that the the gearing up process, and it's it's still relevant today. Wherever wherever you are, you know, winning a big project like that, there's that question of you know, do you employ people before you win it or after you win it, and how you can gear up. We've got big expectations around pace and delivery, but actually, if you don't set the project up and the partnership up right from the start, then you're never going to get anywhere. So there is that real challenge, that real tension between you know pace and ambition and making sure that you put the scaffolding in place for these long-term partnerships to be successful. And you know, one of the really big lessons that I take away from the the Havering partnership and the, the start of that journey is we probably didn't push the button fast enough on bringing in additional expertise to support the delivery of that project. And we probably should have lent into that a little bit, a little bit more and pushed a little bit harder. You were with Waits for, for three years, weren't you? Yeah, I think f- nearly four, actually. Nearly four years. Yeah. Um, mm. so if, again, thinking about those sort of chapters about sort of, you know, when you've been sort of learning the most and you know, what, would, what would you say were the start when you start to think about sort of what might be next for you uh, and, and, and what was the trigger for that? So I, I did a course when I was at Waits called, it was at Henley Business School. And I was really lucky um, to be put on that course. And you sort of do, it's a combination of a bit of study, it was a bespoke to wait, it's a bit of study, a bit of kind of self-reflection, some mentoring, um, talking to others within weights, sharing of experiences, that sort of thing. And when when I did that course, you do one of those, I don't know what you call them, Nick, but they're sort of um, personality or trait identifier questionnaires and you I think this one you answered the question a certain series of questions there was about 400 of them in in like 20 minutes and at the end of it, it spits out this and you are this type or whatever and um, cup of tea or champagne right? yeah well, that's right always champagne <laughs> come on um no it, it spat out this thing at the end and it was um you know what characteristics on one side and then where you sat um on the on the other axis and it kind of plotted you and then it plotted where the average was. And I was like right in the middle of the average. And I thought, oh, that's really interesting. I didn't think I was average, but oh, okay, I'll be average. I don't mind. And then I read the fine print and it said that 80 or 82% or something like that of the people who'd taken that test were men in executive roles. And I thought, oh, so that means I'm actually an average man. <laughs> and I thought, wow, okay. That's a, a lot for me to think about, not because I actually thought I was a man. I, I don't ad- identify as a man. But I think it really highlighted to me perhaps some of the reasons why I've been successful in a male-dominated industry. And even today at, at my level, it's incredibly male-dominated. Most rooms that I'm in, if it's an executive room, it's it's me plus everybody else is is, is male or, or other. And... I started to think perhaps I've been really unfair on other people, particularly female colleagues, because just because I've found it okay, because my personality or character type suits this sector, doesn't mean other people are going to find that to be true. And they may need more help on their journey than maybe I did. And I started to realise that I am responsible for raising the mountain up so other people can see further. And I really believe in the principle that it's my responsibility to support other women in this sector or, you know, other people who are 
you know, not represented in this sector, whether they're, you know, male or female or um, BAME or, or other, to try and create that diversity that we all are, are so wanting, but mostly just to help other people and give them my support and do it with purpose rather than by accident. Really good answer. So, Kate, I think we, yeah, we're, we've been sort of taking our audience so far on a really, really sort of interesting sort of journey. And we're now, we're getting pretty close now up to the present day. So tell us a bit more about sort of, you know, what happened then to, to trigger that move then from Waits to, to Countryside? Yeah, I mean, it, I've, I really enjoyed my time at Waits. We, just as I was leaving, we secured the joint venture partnership with Harrow Borough Council and um, all of these big partnerships uh, we, you put blood sweat and tears into and I must admit they're very difficult to to leave behind um, but an opportunity just came up to work at Countryside and I thought actually I better do some thinking around that and just just see what what that might mean because I I hadn't really spent a lot of time Nick thinking about other jobs and and moving because I was really looked after at Waits and I enjoyed the work and I enjoyed my colleagues and I enjoyed the partners that I worked with as well. And, you know, as you know, they gave me huge opportunity while I was there. But um, I ended up meeting the countryside team and talking to them about their ambitions and what they were wanting to do. And, you know, naturally part of that is growth, i.e. growth in numbers, more, you know, more development, more profit, those sorts of things, which you would expect out of any business. But the other thing they were really striving to do was to create a, a deeper social impact and a deeper legacy through the work that they deliver. And I'm, I work in the Countryside Partnership South team, and I believe we are the largest private developer of housing estates in the UK. That's being, you know, in partnership with local councils or in partnership with housing associations. So it's really, really important that we get that social impact and legacy piece right. We know how to build really good buildings. We know how to design really good buildings. That, that to me is something that should be taken as a given that we do that on all of the projects that we work on. But the, the, the social value work, the ESG piece that wraps around that, I think is the bit that makes all the difference as to whether these places will be successful in the long term. So the, the role that I've taken on at um, Countryside is to support their journey in that regard, their growth in the social investment and legacy space. But coupled with that, thinking about how we transition to net zero, which we've committed to. We've we've released our Pathfinder 2030, which sets out how we're going to do that and how, how we're going to kind of make sure that we are always innovating and driving towards, you know, not just good outcomes, but great outcomes for our partners. Uh, you're falling into the habit then of like like lots of sort of executives I, I interview whereby sort of your priorities are sort of merging yeah. with the with the PLC. Yeah. What about what about your personal sort of priorities? You know, what are, what are you looking to to achieve next? For me, there's something about scale of opportunity. Countryside, um, it is a very large developer, and I can bring a lot of the learning that I had at Waits Residential across to Countryside to increase that um, depth of engagement that we have with our local communities, and really 
increase the depth of the legacy that we leave uh, through through our social impact work. So, you know, that that's a really amazing opportunity. But we're, you know, from my perspective, to look at alternative forms of partnering as well, I've not done a huge amount of work of, sort of town centre regeneration, and I'd like to start exploring that as an opportunity linked really, Nick, to the sort of levelling up agenda and to see where I can bring my skills and um, experience to parts of the UK that maybe are not as experienced in town centre regeneration. So yeah, bring, bringing my my experiences to maybe some commuter towns and, and places outside of London, you know, in those commuter regions that haven't necessarily seen as much investment and as much joint venture partnering and social impact and legacy work as, as some of the London boroughs have. So Kate, before we wrap up, to help our audience listening, what three career lessons would you say that you've learned that you could possibly pass on to those listening now? Yeah, so I've actually put some thought into that, Nick. And the first one for me is to challenge yourself to do something different. There, there's no point just kind of plugging away and plodding along. You've got to put yourself out there. And we talked earlier in this um, chat about about networking. But two for me that I've, I've challenged myself on in the, in the last sort of four years were was one was public speaking. It's not very easy. It's it's something that I think even if you're good at speaking in front of a, a large audience, channeling your message, making your point doing that confidently but not with too much confidence comes across as arrogant I think is um, a real skill so I, I challenged myself in that regard of the last few years and the other one was to become a non-exec board member for a housing association which I've done as well and I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed both of those two challenges both you know had their you know, challenges as well as opportunities too in terms of how it built my career. But if I didn't take those two challenges, I don't necessarily think I would be where I am today because they've been part of me building up my own capabilities and building up my own skills. So I think challenge yourself to do something different and and make sure you go and do it. So number two for me is to take ownership of your own career journey. No one owes you anything. Everything that you do is is not for you. It can be for other people. And I often talk about social impact and legacy. And I talked about Angela earlier where, you know, I build homes for other people. But your career is, is your own. And you've got to shape that and believe in yourself and put steps in place that get you where you want to go. So write down what's important to you. Write down where you'd like to be and then just map out how you're going to get there rather than let it sort of, you know, land or fall organically. Have a purpose of that journey and and make sure you own it and you're not putting onus on anybody else to, to drive you forward. And I certainly think that I've done that in my career, not just in terms of the different jobs that I've done, you know, in the job sense, but some of the challenges that I've given myself to expand my horizons. You know, when I joined Waits, I didn't really understand what social value and legacy was in the same sense that I do now. And through working with uh, Michelle McSorley at Waits and the wider Waits team, I've really built that capacity within within myself. And it's given me the opportunity now to go and work for Countryside in my current role. And so I think without that and without leaning into that, I never would be where I am now. 
And then, Nick, if I just move on to my third and final, and it links back to what I was sort of saying before about lifting. It's about lifting people up along the way. One thing I've definitely learned is if you help others, it comes back to you in, you know, it comes full circle. And if we support other people, they will support you back. And if you do it with genuine intention, it just has this exponential impact on you as a person and where your career may go. And I really believe that the more senior I get in the roles that I have, this becomes far more important. And I spend a lot of time talking to my colleagues about how we can support our graduates how we can challenge them with networking or challenge them with, you know, doing various courses or being involved in complex meetings or letting them have a go at something, but being there to support them. And I think that the older I get and the longer I've been in this sector, the more passionate I am going to be about lifting people up along the way. What a really nice way to wrap up on such a really positive note, Kate. Thank you very much. No, thanks, Nick, for having me. And um, I hope to get to see you again sometime soon. The Urban Land Institute is the oldest and largest network of cross-disciplinary real estate and land use experts in the world, with more than 45,000 global members. The ULI's ethos of personal development makes them an ideal collaborator on our podcast, and we encourage our listeners to learn more and become members by signing up at uli.org forward slash join, quoting the promo code ACRE. Thank you for listening.